Miss Jocelyn and Miss Wendy over toward Children's Church. We're so glad to have our kids here, and especially on Mother's Day. Man, we think about last week, we talked about Adam and Eve. Well, we talked about the whole Bible last week, but part of what we talked about was Adam and Eve, and Adam's name means human, and Eve's name means life. And on Mother's Day, can't you just see all the life in the room? Can't you just see like how God's blessed us with all these kids and just just overflowing, you know? Like I saw little Georgia up here and how she's like learning worship. Isn't that a blessing to watch Georgia while, while we sing? Like I just see people lifting their hands in worship and then I could see Georgia like trying to high five them like while they're doing it. It's just, it's a wonderful thing. If you're a mom, we're so glad to have you. If, um, if you have a mom, we're really glad to have you too. And we just want to focus our attention in here and just give thanks to God for all those blessings that come from moms. So let's pray. God, we just give you so much thanks that we get a chance to gather again and to look at your word with fresh eyes, with new eyes. God, we thank you for the sort of perspective that can be given to us when we get in a room with brothers and sisters in the Lord and the things of this earth can just grow strangely dim. God, we thank you for the grace that comes from, from reorienting ourselves in worship. Like the words of that song that we just sang. Open up my eyes in wonder, Lord. That's a hard thing. That's a thing we can't do on our own. And so we're coming to you this morning and saying, out of the distractions, out of the good things in life that could distract us, and out of the pain and the struggles that we feel right now, would you... For your glory, open up our eyes with wonder. Because we know that when you do, that you can fill us with your heart. And then out of that, you're going to lead us in love to those that are around us. So God, we can't do that on our own. So we ask for your help right now. For moms, we just give you thanks. For all the things that happen through moms that are your care to us. The nurturing the teaching, the protecting, the serving, the sacrificing, the soothing, the cleaning, the worrying over, the singing over, the rejoicing in beautiful life. When we think about these verbs that can describe moms, we just see reflections of your image in them and how moms bear your image in a beautiful and unique way. God, we especially lift up those to you this morning whose Mother's Day is not social media perfect. And we know that so many areas in our lives are not as cleaned up or as joyful or as put together as maybe we long for them to be. So we ask that you would meet us in the struggles where life's not smooth. We pray for those whose moms have perhaps failed in some way, or us in the room, moms that feel and struggle with the idea that maybe they have failed in some way. Would you bring hope to us as moms or as kids? Help us to not just ignore it and brush over it, but help us to run to you for the hope and the healing that only you can bring. For relationships this morning that are strained, would you grant us reconciliation, even if it's been a long time, even if it doesn't seem possible, just give us the grace and the strength to ask for it 
and to know that if it happened, it would only come from you. For those who you've not chosen or grant children to yet, would you just center their hearts and their minds on you? Would you help them to wait on you? Would you help them to find their joy in you and encouragement that comes from this faith family and help them to see that they're not defined by what they have or don't have? And as we reflect this morning on a book that is just full of moms at the center of it, moms that rejoice, moms that suffer, moms that have victories, and moms that can't do it on their own and need help, would you help us to fix our eyes on you and be reminded of how you faithfully care for us? Meet us in this moment as we open the book. Help us to see you and know you a little better than when we started. In your name, amen. All right, y'all. Week two. You ready? We covered the whole Bible last week. We could cover a lot of other things this week, but it's still going to be the Bible. So last week we started a series called Image Bearers. And the main point of this, if you don't get anything else from the month of May, is no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've done, yeah, even that, your story fits into God's big story. No exceptions. Any person you can even think of in history, no matter who they were, where they were from, or what they did, and what you know that they did, their story also fits into God's big story. And so in the month of May, we're looking at humans being made in the image of God and how that truth will transform us to love God and to love other people in a fresh and a new way. And this morning, we're going to look at the book of Ruth. So it's near the beginning-ish of your Bible. If you get through the first five books, if you get through Deuteronomy, you'll end up in Joshua and then Judges, and then you'll end up at Ruth. Interesting little tidbit, just because I'm a nerd. Some people put Ruth right next to the book of Proverbs in the Bible. Does anybody know why that would be the chase? Y'all ever heard that before? So the book of Ruth could come right after Proverbs, and some Hebrew folks do that because Ruth, in many ways, personifies the Proverbs 31 woman. And so as you look at the woman of wisdom through the book of Proverbs, and then you end up with this like model Proverbs 31 woman that just makes us all look and feel bad because you can't live up to her standard, then you get Ruth right after that, walking in, in many ways, as a personification of, of that woman. But that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So right after the book of Judges, we're going to get to the book of Ruth, and that will help us orient ourselves in this study this morning. Ruth, if nothing else, is just a really good story. And you know, people are wired to just love stories, like, I could give you information, like I just did, that trivia tidbit, but like, we don't thrive on statistics. As humans, we're wired to love stories, narratives that are just set on fire. They come alive. The truth comes alive when we see it in somebody's life, acted out in dirty, messy, complicated situations with other people who are also complicated. That's the stuff that we love, right? I mean, I could go home with you and look at your Netflix queue and you could like see that, that we love good stories. I mean, some of us might be like, Ken Burns, Ken Burns, Ken Burns, Ken Burns, but he tells stories too, you know? So 
And some stories are good enough that you'll just listen to them over and over and over. How many of y'all have The Office and like the first five little things on your Netflix queue? Anybody? I know some people like The Office. Um, but how many of y'all have something in your Netflix, Hulu, Amazon? I can't keep up with the services. How many of y'all end up watching the same old thing? Yeah? There's like how many millions of like series and like you can't keep up with this like fire hose of content that like Netflix throws at you. And even though you have like more options for entertainment than anything ever, you're just watching the same old stuff and you can quote every single line of that because it's that good. And some stories are so good that you just listen to them on repeat. That's how I feel about the book of Ruth. Ruth has it all. It has great characters. Grieving, dark, complex Naomi in all of her struggle. Some that she brought on herself and a lot that she didn't. You have loyal Ruth, ride or die. Thelma and Louise driving off the cliff together, Ruth. She will be with you riding shotgun. And then you have Boaz, who, spoiler alert, next week comes in as the hero of the story. And Boaz will show us in a lot of ways not that every woman needs a man, but that we all are looking toward a redeemer who can come in regardless of our circumstances and pick us up and dust us off and give us a heritage that we didn't even earn. And that'll be what we talk about next week. I'm talking about last week and next week, but this is a great story. Great characters, an interesting setting taking place during the time of the judges, which is a dark time in Israel's history. We go from literally a place that means trash can to literally another place that means house of bread. We find ourselves in all sorts of different settings in just four chapters, and we're going to cover the four chapters more or less in the next two weeks. In the next two weeks, we'll find ourselves in Moab, in a wheat field, in, a, in, a, in Boaz's field. We'll find ourselves on the threshing floor. We'll find ourselves at the city gate. And we'll find ourselves in a bedroom in the middle of the night with people that aren't even married. Whoa. <laughs> and then we have, the setting is almost like another character in the book of Ruth. And there's just beautiful themes that can come out of that. So we have great characters, an interesting setting, and then a plot that moves you because Ruth is unquestionably a story of redemption with a group of widowed refugees at the center and Boaz as the hero. So as we talk about the Old Testament Quartet of the Vulnerable, which is the next four weeks of our sermon series here, we'll see that God has special love for the orphan, the widow, the refugee, and the poor. And as we are full of God's grace, and as we truly know who we are, and not this false, more put together than we really are self, but who we really are, needing help from God and receiving such great gifts from God, it'll automatically, it'll, not automatically, that's why we're doing this series, it, it will naturally, the more that we appreciate it, overflow in our hearts toward love for those four groups of people. So two out of those four can be found in the book of Ruth. And I was tempted to say, let's talk about the widow part this week, let's talk about the refugee part next week, because I really want you to see uniquely God's heart for those two groups of people. But how many of y'all know that life don't work that way, right? 
And you can't be reduced to a label either, right? So we can't say Naomi equals this. People are messy. And people have all sorts of situations and categories that can define certain parts of their lives. And we're just going to meet them there, if that's okay with you. So this week, we'll talk about Naomi and Ruth and how they interact. And next week, we'll talk about Ruth and Boaz. And we'll just tell a love story, which is just wonderful, I think. So this morning... Listen to this from pastor and author Tony Morita. And a lot of what we're talking about this morning, some of the themes, this is a wonderful resource. If you're just looking for a devotional that'll take you through the book of Ruth, this book is called Ruth for You. And they say, this is for you to read, to enjoy God's kindness and care. This is for you to feed, helping to meditate on God's word by day, day by day. And this is also for you to lead. So no matter what you're doing to interact with the book of Ruth, I would recommend this resource super highly. And so some of the ideas that we're talking about this morning come from this pastor and this author. His name's Tony Morita. You can't have this, but I'll just show you how to find it on Amazon. (laughs) Because I only have one. So he says, the book of Ruth is one of the best short stories ever written. But this is not just about a woman finding a husband or a widow finding a family. This story is about the royal line that leads to Jesus. And our lives are full of real pain and real challenges and super great things to celebrate. But our lives, however full they are, are not about us. Just like Ruth's story wasn't about her, our story is part of the greatest story that's ever been told. Whether we see it or not, and we're going to see how our stories fit into that big story. So let's jump right in. Certain words, you know, are more powerful than other words. Certain words can be particularly like memorable or emotional. Certain words can be super joyful, like the words, it's a boy. Or, yeah, they do have all 10 fingers and 10 toes. Or the words, congratulations, you've been accepted. Or the words, I do. How joyful are those words? When you actually hear them coming out the lips of the one that you love. But certain words aren't so joyful. Certain words can be devastating. What about, sorry, we're going to have to let you go. What about, I hope you never hear this in your whole life, but from a pilot, what about the words brace for impact? (laughs) Or from the doctor, have we ever heard these words about someone that we love? I'm really sorry. But there's nothing else we can do. Certain words can just suck the air, the air right out of the room and be devastating. And Ruth is a story that starts with words like that. When you start reading Ruth, you just get overwhelmed because things really go from bad to worse quickly for them. So before we see how bad it actually gets, let's talk about the main point of what we're doing today. So the main point of Ruth and Naomi's interaction, as we're going to look at it, is this. Even when life is stacked against us, and be honest, sometimes it is. Even when life is stacked against us, we can follow our faithful God. Where he goes, we can go. Because he's at the center of our lives. So the book of Ruth opens with some devastating words. Let's read Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The text says, In the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn 
in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These sons took Moabite wives. The name of one of them was Orpah, and the name of the other one was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And then both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman and the women was left without her two sons and a husband. So really, things have gone from bad to worse. And so we're really going to look at Ruth and Naomi, but we've got to set the stage because, whoa, that's a lot. You ever like, has someone ever asked you how you're doing and then you actually told them and then they said, whoa, <laughs> that's kind of a lot. You've kind of got a lot going on. They have a lot of pain and suffering going on. So let's look back at verse number one and just kind of take detail by detail. The first thing is when the judges ruled. So like we said earlier, this is taking place in a time in Israel's history where it's exceedingly dark and disobedient. And if you don't get anything else from the book of Judges, you can remember the phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so that became a theme in the book of Judges over and over. And because of that disobedience, it led to all sorts of suffering that came upon the Israelites. And it led, honestly, to a, a lot of chastening from the Lord and a lot of judgment from the Lord. And it's not popular to talk about judgment on Mother's Day, but God, as a loving parent, was using hard circumstances on rebellious children because he loved them and he was bringing them back into a close relationship and he was doing whatever it would take to get them to repent and to turn back and to be close. So they lived, all of these folks, all the characters in this story, in a time where the whole culture around them was not peer pressuring them into holiness. It was doing the exact opposite. So on top of that, there's a famine in the land. So just like I told you before, there were things that came upon the nation of Israel um, that were hard and that the Lord was using to bring them toward repentance. More on that later. And on top of the famine, on top of the disobedience, you have three funerals. Boom, boom, boom. Within five verses, we're left with three grieving widows in a foreign land, just doing what they can to survive. And in spite of all of that, it's incredibly clear that God took care of them and that God loved them. And it's unmistakable. And I want to show you how beautiful that is at the same time. So number one, here's our first point, God's care. So in verses one through seven, I know we just read five of those seven verses and it didn't sound like God's care, but I'm going to show you that it's beautiful the way that God was choosing to play the long game and provide for them even when you couldn't see light anywhere, even when it was dark, unmistakably dark. So God cared for Ruth and Naomi through grief, economic challenges, and how about this, even in spite of some things that they could have done differently. And if we're honest with ourselves, do we ever find ourselves there? Things really are hard, but I really could have done some things differently too. God, why would you 
Why would you come back to me if I'm not even doing the things that you tell me to do? And in spite of that, God does. Let's talk about the famine a little bit because that, that really is kind of like integral to how this plot works in the book. This is the reason they left home because there was no food at home and Elimelech had to provide for his family. So three things to talk about the famine. Number one, it hurt. It was more than just, man, that's all we have in the fridge. It was more than just, when was it? May, June, July of last year when it was hard to find toilet paper and that was a little inconvenient and everyone couldn't stop posting about it and you couldn't stop liking those posts because that never happens. It was more than that. Even though that's inconvenient and shortages are a thing that we're not used to but we're kind of used to now, it hurt this famine. This famine was real, like economically like shaking their foundations. Like they couldn't provide the 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 main things, the first things. They couldn't even get on to comfort because they didn't have their needs met yet. So it hurt. It was worse than normal. Famines were a bit more common back then. Seasons of plenty, seasons of less. But this famine was particularly bad. And the text tells us that the famine was so bad that it even reached Bethlehem. And that's interesting because the word Bethlehem, the name of the town, literally means house of bread. It'd be like driving up to Panera on Garland Grill and being like, hey, can I have a bagel? And they're like, you know, we're out of bread today. And you're like, why are you open? What are you even doing? So even the house of bread didn't have any bread. It was a severe circumstance. And number three, this is where we're going to dig in. Uh, The famine, this is a tough truth, was tied to their disobedience. So in Deuteronomy, God sets the ground rules for the nation of Israel, and he promises to bless people when they obey, and he promises to bring judgment against them when they're in disobedient states for his own glory and for their ultimate good. So according to Deuteronomy 28, blessing when they were obedient looked like victory in battle and successful crops and bringing forth kids and grandkids to the ends of the earth. But in the same passage, God warns that if they disobey, they might be subject to something that looks like the opposite. They might be subject to military defeat. It's more than might. There's a lot of it in the Old Testament. And they also may be subject to famine and seasons of disobedience. This does not mean that if you're going through a hard time right now, it means you've done something wrong. That is not what I'm saying, even a little bit. But it does mean, however, that historically God does use circumstances to advance his purposes, to deliver his people from sin, which he finds the most important, and to draw them back to him when their hearts turn away. This famine should have led Israel to repent, but we don't see any evidence of that in the life of Elimelech. We actually see a little bit of the opposite. Elimelech's name literally means, my God is king. But in this situation, he's not acting like that. One pastor, his name is Sinclair Ferguson, puts it this way. Instead of turning back to the Lord during this tough time, this little family turns their backs on the Lord and goes to live in Moab instead. So just like the people in his own day, in the book of Judges, Elimelech is doing what's right in his own eyes. And in verse 1, and in verse 1, this is kind of how sin works and doubt works sometimes. 
it seems like they're only going to sojourn in Moab for a little while to make sure that they have their needs met for this temporary situation. We're only going to be in lockdown for like three weeks, right? <laughs> That's what it seems like. And then all of a sudden you get to, I think it's first three, I believe. Uh, they ended up in Moab for 10 years. An old preacher used to say when I was growing up that sin always takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and costs way more than you ever wanted to pay. Even though our hearts are drawn to the thing that looks so appealing, sin just gets its clutches around. And so Elimelech, instead of saying, God, I'm, I'm hearing what you're doing here, would you heal our land? Would you start with me and my heart? Would you draw me back to you? I know you'll provide for me, and I'll wait on you even though it's not easy. Would you do the same thing in my neighbor's heart? Instead of doing that, he gets on Google Maps and says, nearby restaurants. <laughs> and there he goes, doubting God's provision. Be honest. How often do you feel like a Elimelech? How often is it just so much easier to say, how can I make sure that this thing that feels so overwhelming to me gets met? If I wait on the Lord, how long will I wait? Do we actually believe that the Bible's enough? Or do we just say that we do? The truth is that God was calling Elimelech to do something hard. As a man providing for his family, God was calling Elimelech to stay and to wait and to repent and to trust. And in his heart, maybe he's saying, as a provider, I got to get my job done. Sometimes the Lord calls us to do things that don't really jive with our common sense, though, right? In these situations, when God's calling us to do hard things, counterintuitive things, we can respond in a couple bad ways. Probably more than a couple, but here's a couple. Number one, we can ignore the thing that we know to be true. And we can pretty quickly find some churchy words to go with it, right? To justify the thing that might be uncomfortable. We can ignore what we know to be true. And other times, we can just allow our feelings to take the lead and then use the phrase, God told me, or I feel like God was leading me to do this, even though maybe we haven't searched the scriptures enough and, and maybe we just have a strong emotional pull to that. Proverbs 18.1 says this, and, and this is some, something that someone told me a long time ago that has really stuck with me about wisdom and about following God when things are hard. Proverbs 18.1 says, he who isolates himself will do two things. He'll probably end up seeking his own desire and he'll end up breaking, it, breaking out against the sound judgment. The sound judgment of scripture, the sound judgment of people in the body that want to love us and tell us hard things. This morning, Pastor Chris stood right here during our equipping hour and talked about how to say hard things to people in love. What does biblical encouragement look like? And biblical encouragement doesn't mean like, look at this box of kittens all the time. <laughs> Sometimes it looks like, because I love you so much, I want to motivate you toward the thing that's going to bring you joy in the long run. And I love you enough to put myself out there and tell you the hard thing. So Elimelech was called to do a hard thing, and he found himself doing the easy thing. The same pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, puts it this way. We should see Elimelech's life and his decision as a warning, 
He didn't listen to his own name. He didn't treat God like king. Faithful Christianity seeks to live out the word of God in biblical community among spirit-filled, prayerful, wise saints. This is the pattern for good decision-making, not just choosing to go our own way like Elimelech did. So we can see that Elimelech made some bad choices because he let the discomfort drive him to a place of worldliness. And he also didn't see, it didn't seem like he was in the community of saints that can help us whenever we're struggling with those things. So if you're in a place where things are hard and you don't know what the right thing is, or you don't think you have the energy to do the right thing, God's calling us to text the brother. God's calling us to call a sister. God's calling us to be honest on the phone or on FaceTime or going over to have coffee with them and say, I know the right thing, but it's, wow, I don't want to front with you. I don't know how to get there. And I'm not asking you to fix me either. I'm just asking you to walk with me. There's so much joy that you can find there. So much wisdom you can find there. There's so much peace you can find there, not having to front with somebody, but knowing that they're walking the same walk. And they're probably going to call you in a couple days anyway, (laughs) struggling with something else. So use Elimelech's life as a warning. So we see his foolishness there. And his foolishness kind of like sets the stage and forms an inciting incident of sorts for this plot line. You can't understand why Ruth and Naomi need to do the things that they're doing without seeing foolishness and judgment that got them into a really tough situation. So let's put Elimelech to the side and let's look at Naomi's situation here. Naomi is a woman who's profoundly suffering. She's experienced three funerals and she's far from home. A grieving widow with no sons. Can you just imagine the grief of this lady? Funeral after funeral after funeral. Sometimes, like in, in our family, like, like sometimes we'll hear, you know, bad things like that. Deaths in the family, they come in threes. And, and so you can you feel multiple losses and how they kind of compound on each other. Just imagine, like, she's a widow in a foreign land with no significance, no, no social standing because of the culture. Her husband and two sons aren't there to protect or provide for her like the custom was in those days. And there's no children or grandchildren left to carry on Naomi's family line. And all the while, in the middle of all these circumstances, she has this nagging feeling that I'm getting on up there in age. And there's not a lot of time left to see redemption happening and to feel the solution. And many of us can identify with Naomi. This last year has given us more than enough opportunities to talk about how we need to wait on God and how we need to find hope in the midst of suffering and not walk through suffering alone. Sometimes it comes through COVID, but sometimes it comes through car accidents or heart attacks or unexpected losses. Like we talked about last week, we live in a fallen world and every last one of us will stand beside graves, just like Naomi did. At some point, all of, ourself, all of us are going to find ourselves weeping and wondering how God's going to provide this time and wondering where hope's going to come from or even if it can come again. So we need it. When we get in those depths, we have to have hope to get pulled out of it. And Naomi needed a big old double dose of hope. And God was just ready and waiting to provide it. 
So let's look at verse 6, because for the first time, we see some good news come into this story. Verse 6 says, Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So let's just like think about almost every word in this phrase, because God's care is just like dripping off the page in this. So the first thing is that Naomi had the faith to rise up and to follow God in obedience. How many of y'all can think about the right thing to do and even like game it out, maybe like four or five steps into the right thing to do, but then you're like, oh wait, I'm still on the couch right now. I haven't started the right thing. But God gave Naomi the grace and the motivation to rise up and to go back toward the homeland. Why? Because she'd heard good news in the fields of Moab. The good news about God's grace and God's provision had made it all the way to the foreign country. And it's not like everyone got a push notification that said, God visited the fields of Israel. Uh, It was good news that traveled quickly. And it probably traveled quick because it felt like cold water on a hot day. People were just looking for relief. And they had heard that it finally came. Probably like the news used to spread like um, after you won a battle or something like that. The news just of victory. So she heard all the way in the fields of Moab. And what did she hear? She heard that the Lord had visited his people. They didn't just say there's food now. They didn't just say Panera got the truck in. They said God visited Israel and provided for them. They didn't chalk it up to climate change. They didn't chalk it up to like buying this new technological thing that would help with their crops. They knew that God had provided for these people and that had caused the change. Even the, the folks in the fields of Moab are repeating the fact, no matter if they believe it or not, that God had given the increase. They're spreading the good news and they might not even believe. And they're talking about God doing what he does best which is provide. He loves providing for his people. It's not that God is just an expert at providing. God loves to provide for his children. Even while we're yet sinners, God loves. He takes joy in providing for his people. We know that. He still operates that way with us too. We can trust God and we can wait on God because we see this long train of him being good to other people and providing for other people, providing for people all through the pages of scripture, loving and providing and meeting people in needs that seem insurmountable, like here, like today, like in this room, meeting needs that we could never figure out or engineer on our own in ways that only he could get the glory from. That's God's nature. And I just want us to be thankful for that. In a crisis, God doesn't just like wash his hands and like back up a little bit and say, oh, you got a lot going on there. Like God's nature is to intervene and bring himself glory and sacrifice for us. So we kind of draw it back to to the big theme in the month of May, image bearers, right? So God is a certain way and we're learning more about God every week and we're focusing and worshiping God for the things that we know but get reminded about him. But then we're also seeing that people 
are to bear the image of God. And so when we see a good thing that makes us want to worship, we should look at that and say, how am I like radiating that? How is the image of God in me showing people that God is like this? So as his image bearers, God calls us to be conduits of provision for other people. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion looks like visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. And notice that same word there that starts with the letter V. So in the fields of Moab, they said, The Lord has visited his people. And in the book of James, God says, Pure and undefiled religion looks like visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. We can image God in his visitation, his provision, his showing up in suffering by just doing the same thing. And not everybody has to do it in the same way. This is a body, right? This is not a deformed body. This is a diverse body. And we all have different passions and we all have different skill sets that we bring to the table. So where is God motivating you to visit people in their affliction? Where is God calling you with your story and your skills to actually be the hands and feet of Jesus for people? Maybe it's foster care. Maybe it's adoption. There's a heartbeat in this church for the children in Washington County that come through the Department of Social Services. There, from the beginning of this church, there has been a beating heart and a constant passion to see grace come to these kids. No matter where they are right now, no matter where they'll be in 18 months, we see that as just a beautiful way to show people God's love. So maybe God's moving your heart to start doing that. Maybe God's moving your heart to just have dinner with somebody that's already doing it and ask them about their experience and see like, whoa, maybe don't like give me a baby like right now, but like, can I actually like help a little bit? Can I get my feet wet a little bit? Maybe that's not your thing though. Maybe God's blessed you with the ability to speak another language and you look around at the folks in our community and you see gospel need, but with a barrier of the English language not being there. Maybe God's calling you to figure out how to plug that linguistic like superpower that you have into a way that can like bring people to Jesus. We're all about helping people find and follow Jesus. So how can they find him if they don't understand the language that we're even talking about him in? But maybe you can stand in the middle. Maybe God's saying, how do we find the first step for that? But that is visiting people where they are. Maybe it's not even that either. Maybe you have a heart for the elderly because there are so many folks that are just either members of our church right now or just like one degree removed from members in our church that they need a little extra care. They can't make it here every week, but they need to hear the gospel and they need that love and that care and that interaction. And maybe your heart breaks whenever you think about the fact that they're not getting that as much as they should or would or as other people have made in the image of God as much as you wish that they could. How can you get with a friend and figure out how to make that happen? And how can the church support you in making that happen too? Just dream big dreams for how we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in this place. Why do we do this? Is it because it looks good? Is it because we're about good works around here? Kind of. Good works reflect the goodness of God. But why do we do the works in the first place? 
Why do we help people at all? Are we just helpers? Like, does it just fulfill us? We bring it back to the gospel. We give because we've received such a great, great gift. So again, Tony Morita in his book, Ruth for You, puts it this way. Quote, Christians are the people who should most identify with the orphan and widow. Why? We were the orphan, and God spiritually adopted us. We were the widow, and Jesus became our kinsman redeemer. We were the stranger on the outside, and God brought us in and made us citizens of heaven. And we were the poor, and Jesus gave us a glorious inheritance. Do we believe that? Like, do we really internalize that? The longer that we walk with God, the more we realize, the more I realize, that all of us end up falling into the category of weak and wounded, sick and sore. And I don't want you to think that. I want to button myself up really nice and make sure that you respect me and, you know, all these things get in the way. But when we're truly honest before the Lord, we need to receive grace just as much as people need to receive help. Okay, that's point one. The next points are going to go like really quick. And we're going to jump into Naomi and Ruth and a pretty intense conversation, like a tough love situation, and then like a beautiful poem, and then we'll be done. So number two, Naomi's challenge. So Naomi responds to this news. God's visited Israel in the fields of Moab by getting up and returning to the homeland. But her two daughters-in-law, they're not from there. Her sons found wives in Moab. And so now, even though they're with Naomi, and they are super bonded because of all that they've gone through together, when Naomi says, I'm going back to Israel, they can't say going back because they've never been there. And those aren't their people, and that's not their culture. So what are they going to do if Naomi's going back to Israel? Think about all the life they went through together. She was there being the mother of the groom at the wedding. She walked through all of the years of marriage that they went through, and then they attended her husband's funeral, and she attended their husband's funeral. These people are not just acquaintances. This is not like, okay, send me an email. Like, they're really having to make, like, tough, life-changing decisions here. Like, why would I stay? Because I love Naomi so much. And Naomi's going back to her homeland different than she left. And it might be kind of hard for her to swallow, too. She left with a husband that was looking to just do anything he could to provide and with two beautiful sons that were ready and waiting to carry on her heritage. And now she comes back, and she doesn't look as good as she used to. And she wonders, probably, what are people going to think of me whenever I get back to Israel? What's my reputation going to feel like? Can I show my face back in those same places that I used to? So there's just lots of emotional stuff wrapped up in this conversation we're about to get into. But I want you to see that faith in God like motivates them to do a thing that they had probably would never do on their own. So the rest of what we're looking at is tough love. Because Naomi loves Orpah and Ruth, she basically wants them to stay in Moab so that they'll make sure they get what they need. So let's look at verse 8, because the conversation starts with a prayer that Naomi offers on Ruth and Orpah's behalf. 
Verse 8, Naomi says to them, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And may the Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. So, so even though Naomi's going through it on a lot of levels, she goes back to her faith in God. And even though she, we'll see, is really kind of confused and really kind of bitter about a lot of stuff that's happened, she still has like a baseline belief that God is a kind God. And she sees a reflection of that in Ruth and Orpah's life too. She says, may the Lord deal as kindly with you as you have with me. So she's seeing God's kindness in all of their relations and hope that it continues. And when she says kindness, it doesn't mean like customer service voice kindness. Like there's a deep, like whenever, whenever the Old Testament says God's kindness, that's like one of the biggest, heaviest concepts that you can pick up in the whole Bible. The Hebrew word is hesed, and it literally means God's faithful, enduring covenant love. And so Naomi says, I hope that God continues to show this covenant, faithful love to you the same way that I know, like I've gotten that from you in my relationship. She knows that God's faithful love can preserve them even after she's gone. Even if they stay and she goes, in her prayer, she can see like, God, I know you're going to take care of them even if I'm all by myself. And then she prays that they'll experience that specifically. And I get encouraged by folks in this room to not just pray big, abstract prayers for people, but to pray that God will provide for their specific needs. So God, deal kindly with Ruth and Orpah. Deal kindly with them specifically and that they would find rest and that the location of that rest would be in a new husband's house. She really wants them to be taken care of, specifically, and she asks God for it. She steps out and says, God, don't leave them in the lurch. She wants to make sure that they're secure. And Ruth and Orpah respond to that initially, in verse 10, by objecting. They say, no, we're gonna, we can't do that. That's not how this is going to work. Uh, and maybe it was just because it was hard for them to even think about the concept of leaving. Maybe it was hard for them to imagine themselves apart at all. Or maybe uh, because they saw that even if she did go by herself, she was getting up, um, up in age and they wondered about her welfare. Um, so they initially object because there's so much love in this relationship. But then verse 11, Naomi speaks her mind. She's like, I'm gonna have the last word here and this is what I want you to do. Verse 11 says, turn back, my daughters. She's not like proposing anything anymore. She's telling them what to do. She says, turn back. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? She says it again. Turn back, my daughters, and go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you really wait till they were grown? Would you refrain from marrying for that long? Basically, what's the point of this seems hopeless? Verse 13, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake 
that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lift, lifted up their voice and they wept again. So Naomi is just full of emotion right now. And it's hard for her to see the situation clearly because there's so much going on, just like us. Sometimes our hope and our vision of what God wants to do really gets clouded by anxiety, by doubt, by all sorts of stuff that creeps in. And so we can see Naomi's a, a, like really overwhelmed right now. And now it really comes down to what are they going to do personally? What is Ruth going to do in this moment? What's Orpah going to do in this moment? So that's the last point here. We're going to see Ruth's courage. So verse 14, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This is, a, this is a crossroads that they find themselves at. So let's start with Orpah and see her reaction. It, it's easy to throw off on Orpah when you read this story. And honestly, she drops off the pages of scripture after this, and we don't hear of her again. And she was not marked by faith in the Lord. But at the same time, look at how close her situation can be to each one of ours. Orpah's not making this decision just because she doesn't love Naomi enough to go back with her. Orpah says, this is the safe, sensible decision to go back to Moab. I know that if I go back to Moab, it's very likely that my needs will be met. It's very likely that I can find another husband. It's very likely that things will continue as they've always continued and I'll have what I need. And don't we find ourselves there? Just saying, this is familiar, and I know that I can trust this situation. So she kisses Naomi goodbye, and we never hear from her again. It's not, it, it's still full of love, but it's also full of grief. But Ruth is a different story, right? We see in verse 14 that she clings to her. So Naomi gets a kiss from Orth, Orpah, but she gets a full-on awkward, snotty bear hug from Ruth, just overflowing with emotion and overflowing with the closeness that's always been there. Whenever they say Ruth clung to Naomi, it kind of reminds me of Adam and Eve and saying, Eve, you're going to leave your father and mother and you're going to, or Adam. So leave your father and mother and cleave and become one flesh. It's not exactly the same thing, but there's a loyalty that's happening here in the fact that she is committed to Naomi for the long haul. So much that she's going to leave her culture and her people on purpose. She's choosing to experience culture shock. And I don't know if you've ever experienced culture shock. I've not really. I moved from like the deep south to here and that's nothing. But if you experience true one culture to another culture, one ethno-linguistic area to a different one, and you say, I'm going to do that for you on purpose because I love you, that's a lot of love. That's a deep love. And Ruth counts the cost. And she does it anyway. And here's the bottom line about Ruth. Ruth is a picture of risk-taking faith. And she takes that risk because she believes in a big, sovereign God. And you don't see that yet, but in the next verses, you're going to see it in a really clear way. She's so convinced that she can't be talked out of it. And believe me, Naomi keeps trying. <laughs> because we see in verse 15, she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
she says, you can still see your taillights. It's, like, it's fine. Like, you can go. It's okay. I give you permission. I'm not going to be offended if you go. And then Ruth's like, no, now I'm going to have the last word. And it's not, like, mean, but it's beautifully firm. And it's a picture of how full of faith Ruth really is, and you would never really know it until she puts her heart out there. And it's actually written poetically, which will show you that there's even more beauty than you might even think. So verses 16 and 17. Here's Ruth's response to Naomi. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Here's the the famous part. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She basically says, listen, Naomi, you're not going to talk me out of this. I believe in God, and I'm going to do this thing, so let's just stop talking about it. (laughs) She really, like, have you ever had somebody, like, say something to you in a way where you go, okay, well, let's just change the subject. (laughs) Like, that's kind of what this is. And it's like a profession of faith at the same time. This passage is written in the, a poetic structure called a, called a chiasm, and you don't even need to remember that word, and I'm not sure why I even said it. But here's how the Bible actually breaks down this passage here. Corey, if the, you can put that little triangular diagram up. So it's a poem, and things come in pairs. Here we go. So you see the blue on the top and the bottom? So the first sentence and the fifth sentence go together, and it says, do not urge me to leave you, and then only death will part me from you. So those are thematically going together, and and she's saying, first of all, I'm telling you, stop trying to talk me out of this, and then she ends by saying, I am pledging to go with you. Like, I'm not just saying I feel strongly, I'm making a commitment about this. So then the middle two, go together, uh, sentences two and four. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And then you come back in with the fourth one there, and she's saying, I'm going to do this for the rest of our lives, for the rest of your life, Naomi. Where you die, I will die. And where you're buried, I will be buried. I won't even move away after we get your affairs in order. I am so committed to moving, and this is not a temporary thing. So those two themes are working together to say, Naomi, I am serious. And then in the very middle, she says, this is why I'm serious. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. I can say this, and I can be as serious as I can be about this, because I believe in your God. And because I believe in your God, I'm grafted into your family, your people, Even though we haven't even got on the interstate yet, I belong there because he's my God. The Hebrew there, it literally says, almost like caveman speak, your people, my people. It's almost like there should be an equal sign in there. And then it says, your God, my God. There's no difference. We are the same. 
I can be this bold because I have this big of a God. It's one of the most beautiful like mountaintops in the whole Bible. And this becomes the platform for all sorts of blessings that come out of Ruth's life. Blessings that come to Naomi, a widow and a refugee. Blessings that come to the whole nation of Israel. And blessings that come to us through the nation of Israel and the line of David that ends up in Jesus. It all starts with one person, full of faith. It all starts with one bold proclamation. It all starts with one person willing to take risks and to give their lives towards something worth giving their lives to. So we're going to see next week that faithful, risk-taking Ruth is going to become like a conduit of God's blessing to all these different types of people. And just like we sang before, I want us to see how our lives can flow out into conduits of grace for, for vulnerable people. And not just for the sake of doing good deeds, but because Ruth was an outsider and God brought her in and made her family. And when we think about Hagerstown and when we think about our networks and the people we're connected with, God loves bringing outsiders in. God loves bringing us in and making us part of his new family. He's done that with each and every one of us. And if we can allow that to define us and to fill our hearts, it's really going to make a difference. And it's really going to change the way that we interact with people that need serious help and that really need someone to walk with them through long, complicated, painful issues. It's going to make us say, I received this help too. So we're on a level playing field. So I'm really looking forward to the last half of Ruth and I'm praying that God kind of overflows our hearts into this compassion. So would you pray to that effect with me? God, when we look at professions of faith like Ruth, we're just stunned at how you can fill somebody with that much boldness. And we're also just stunned in advance for how much you can do through the life of one believer that just surrenders to you and says, your will be done, Lord. And that just holds their palms open and says, Everything that I have, my time, my talent, my skill set, my budget, my spouse, my house, my kids, I just hold it all in open palms to you. Lord, how are you going to use me to be a conduit of blessing for people that are around me? How are you going to use me to proclaim the gospel to people? Lord, we're just stunned in advance whenever we see that. And we just ask that you'd help us to open our hearts to that and to believe that you can do the same thing through us. In your name, amen.